0: Um, at the end of the new year and and I can only assume it happened this year because I haven't turned my TV on to watch anything live for for a few days now but usually there's that look back ESPN looks back on the year in sports CNN looks back on the year of uh, political events and world events, etc. Time Magazine or People Magazine might look back on the people that have passed away famous people that have died in 2021 Um, I've been looking back And one of the things um, that sticks in my mind is just a handful of people, uh, and oddly enough, none of them Christian, and and maybe it's not odd when you hear what I'm going to say, but none of them Christian that have really helped me and encouraged me to see the world through their eyes. We can live in a little bit of a bubble here, can't we? I mean, you're my friends, you're my family, you're who I go to lunch with, you're who I study with, you're who I worship with. I see you people probably more than almost anybody other than my family and maybe a couple of close neighbors. But we think a certain way. The world thinks a very different way. And if we're to love them, if we're to be an effective witness to them, if, if they're going to look at us and say, I think that person understands me. I think that person cares for me. We sometimes have some work to do. Paul did this. I won't read the text, but you know it in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those without the law, so those without the law. And then he concludes it by saying this. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So for the sake of the gospel, I've spent more time than usual this past year just listening to people, reading people, trying to understand the world, because... You probably noticed with me, it is not the same world. I'm, I turned 66. Um, it's not the same world that I grew up in in the 60s and 70s. They had their own craziness, I get it. But this is different. This is a different kind of culture that we live in. And so there's people that study this and, and then talk about it and write books about it that are very, very helpful. I was, I was struck by the honesty of one man. His name is Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, some of you may have heard of him. He wrote a book. I believe it became a bestseller, called How to Spend $75 Billion to Make the World a Better Place. And he had just looked at it with his team of, where do you invest a dollar and get 10 or 20 or 40 dollars worth of good back in dealing with things like hunger and poverty and things like that. Very intelligent, very winsome. He's giving people hope. He's talking at Google. I've not read his book. I I watched online a, um, a talk he gave at Google. And, um, and people are listening and, and I'm liking this guy. And then all of a sudden he said, you know, there's one problem we can't solve, death. And then he said, I, I know he was a little tongue in cheek here but I think he was also very transparent. He's, he's talking in terms of how economists can help us think for where to put our money to try to help marginalize people and he said economists would say that we have a severe undersupply of immortality. Clever way to put it, but also a very transparent way to put it. I can help you feed these people. I can help you get these children inoculated so that they grow up healthy. I can help you with infant mortality. I can't help you with death. We have no answer for that. Now, you and I do have an answer. Not that we can say, here's how you don't die. We can say, you don't have to be afraid of it. Death can go from being your master to being your servant. Bjorn Lomborg is probably smarter than any of us in this room. Although, I don't know, some of you might be really smart, and I I just haven't met you yet. But he's a sharp guy. And um, he says, I know what the ultimate problem is. I can't help you. Another man, Hans Rosling, um, he co-wrote a book titled Factfulness. Factfulness published in 2017, just shortly after he died. He, he died four years ago now. And I commend it to you, it's a really good book. Um, it's kind of about the state of the world. It focuses on really basic but important questions. Extreme poverty, uh, hunger, um, infant mortality rates, how many people are dying from natural disasters around the world, um, how many girls are able to get an education, not a question that we think much about in America but there's parts of the world where if you're female you are not allowed to go to school so how's that going getting better getting worse well he developed a test uh, the last one i took we had 13 questions on it and each one had three possible answers and he notes that if he could just train a group of chimpanzees to sit down in front of a computer screen and just give them three buttons three choices Every time a question flashed, they obviously couldn't read it, they wouldn't know what it said, but if they just knew to press one of those three buttons, they would score 33% on the test, wouldn't they? It's a failing grade, but they'd get about a third right. But of course, he doesn't give uh, the test to uh, chimpanzees. He gives it to committees, experts. Uh, He he worked with the UN, he worked with the World Food Bank, he worked with various relief uh, organizations. He works with colleges and universities that have staff that also study these things and that train your and my kids to how to think about this, maybe how to serve in that area. So he gives them the test. Remember, the chimps got 33%. Guess how well they did? Somewhere between 18 and 22% is how they did on average. Now we chuckle, but they're smart people. There are people that are devoting their lives to try to figure out how can we help those who are on the margins. Why did they do so poorly? A very simple answer. There's three choices, and they were, they were kind of, you know, here, here's a pretty good choice, here's a middling choice, and here's a not-so-good choice in terms of how good or bad things are. They got the questions wrong because the correct answer was almost the best answer. One of the questions was, Um, Worldwide, boys, by the time they're 30, have had about 12 years of formal education. How many years have girls had? The choices were like four, six, and 11. Guess what the answer is. It's 11. They guess four and six. Now, why is that? Why are the people charged with looking at our world, formulating solutions, they're experts in that field, why are they always pessimistic? And Hans suggests an answer, I think he's probably right. We have a 24-hour news cycle. And you've told them, by what you click on, by what you tune into, that you like gory, tragic, sensationalistic stories. Just own it, you probably do. Think about what stories you read on your newsfeed. Well, you get into a loop. They need to monetize their product, they need to get paid for it, so they say, okay, we need as many customers as possible. And so we know that people will rubberneck at that accident and cause another one. Um, and, and so they feed you what you've told them that you want. People want. And, and yeah, it's, it's nice that a little boy got a puppy and that nobody was robbed this week. That's never on the front page. There's a, there's a, a saying in journalism, if it bleeds, it leads. Because they know that that's the paper you'll buy. That's the story that you'll click on. So what that's done is train us to some degree. Hopefully you fight back against that a little bit. But train the world that you are called to go and minister to and to love and, and, and to, to call to faith in Christ. It's trained them to be hopeless. It's trained them to always think that the world is worse than it actually is. Third person, last person. Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, um, he's a co-author of Coddling, The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, he makes a very similar point at the risk of, of great oversimplification. Here's what it is. He notes that there has never been a safer time to be alive. Your chance of dying in some untimely fashion from disease or accident or war or natural disaster, anything like that, has never been lower and the anxiety among certain generations has never been higher. In other words, this is the safest possible time to be alive, especially in America, and colleges especially are seeing unprecedented levels of depression, anxiety, suicide, cutting, you name it. Colleges have always had psychology departments to teach their children. Now they need psychologists to minister to them. It's a different world, and we should know about it. And and by the way, before we say one negative word about any generation that's following us, first off, realize that's really old. I'm old enough to remember in the 60s, people talking about, oh, that younger generation. Guess what, in the 70s, oh, that younger generation. It's old. But before we say one negative we're just realize we raised them. Whatever struggles they're having in this world, guess who created that world? Guess who brought them into that world? Guess who raised them in that world? I know the answer every time I step into my bathroom because there's a full-length mirror. So, with that said, how do you win a world that has been trained to be hopeless? Especially even those honest ones that say, you know, I have no answer for that. I know what the ultimate problem is, and I, I can't fix it. Well, Peter has some answers to that question. Um, he saw people that were in need of hope in his day, and, uh, and he gives Christians some absolutely wonderful, but I'm going to argue some very challenging instructions on how to address it. Not merely how to have hope yourself, but how to spread hope. That's what's on Peter's mind. So let's open in First Peter chapter 3, we'll read verses 13 through 17. Here's what Peter says. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, For a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You may have noticed um, Peter does not spare kind of the what I call ominous terminology. Uh, as we read through it, we see words like harm, suffer shows up twice, fear, trouble, slander, reviling. Um, it's not unique to this portion of First Peter. In fact, First Peter—I I was originally going to read him, but for time's sake, I won't. You cannot go through a single chapter in the book of First Peter. There's five chapters, and not find him addressing suffering. It's not an overstatement to say this is probably the dominant theme. How should Christians live in a world that brings suffering upon them? How should they respond to it? With that bit of context, let's just go back to the passage and look at it a little bit more carefully. Verse 13, the first thing I want you to notice is this. Peter, after using all this ominous language of harm and suffering and all that, in a book that's about harm and suffering, seems to imply that, hey, you don't have to suffer. He, he says, let's see, let me get back to it here. Can I read that? No, you, okay. Can't read that one, sorry. Um, he says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So it sounds like as long as you're good, you, you won't get in any trouble. There'll be No harm. Well, I think we need to read a bit more carefully because he goes right into it and says, hey, there's those that are going to scare you, those that are going to give you trouble, et cetera, et cetera." What is he saying? I think he's saying that there's some harm that you bring on yourself. Some of us make decisions. They don't work out well. We get some persecution, some consequences from it. We say they're persecuting me because I'm a Christian. No, they're not. They're persecuting you because you did something you shouldn't have done. You see it in verse 17 where he says, um, let's see, where is it here? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter does have at least two categories of suffering. One comes when you do good and people don't like it, and the other comes from when you do bad and people don't like it. And he says you can avoid one of those. Be zealous for doing good. But he's not holding out a false hope that, hey, just, just be a good person, just do good things, be zealous for good, and life will be smooth and easy. It would be a false hope. It would be contradicted by everything Peter had experienced. It would be contradicted by what he was seeing around them in the world. It would be a false hope. It's, it's, it's almost inevitable in Peter's day because in, in chapter 4, verse 12, we'll read it later, um, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among you as though something strange were happening this is the norm so he continues now in verse 14 not with words about how to avoid suffering through doing good that's legitimate but how to endure the suffering that's still going to come even when you're a faithful christian and the first thing he tells them is that if they suffer for righteousness sake they will be blessed first tool he gives them to tool to fight the anxiety that he says is coming, uh, the fear that's coming, the troubled spirit that's coming. Yes, suffering's hard. None of us volunteers for it, for the most part. Um, But it will not have the last word. God has the last word. And his word says this, he will bless those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, I mentioned that that kind of theme of, of suffering and how a Christian should respond is just common in 1 Peter, uh, let me take you back just a little bit to chapter 1 for just a moment. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So there's the suffering right in the opening portion of the letter, verse 6. But now verse 7, here comes a blessing. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We suffer, not pointlessly, but to prove, or at least in this case, to prove and refine our faith, and we are blessed with praise and glory and honor. Yes, I know Jesus gets praise and glory and honor, but believe it or not, so do you. It will be lesser, no one will be confused when praise and glory and honor are doled out as which one is you and which one is Jesus. There'll be no confusion. He gets ultimate, infinite praise and glory and honor. But you get a measure of it. You share in it. When Christ is revealed with you, you are no longer that simple-minded, supposedly science-denying, superstitious fool that skeptics have just loved to mock for years. You will be the wise one. You'll be the faithful one. You'll be the courageous one who kind of held their ground in the face of that mocking and in the face of that persecution. And your testimony about the reality of Christ, the truth of Christ, the value of Christ, will be what brings you praise and honor and glory. Matthew 13, 43, Jesus said this, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. So if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That's the first thing he tells them. And you, you can make that point from Genesis to Revelation. The next thing he tells them is that they should have no fear, nor be troubled. That's also in verse 14. I won't talk much about the fear part because I think we get it. If, if they're knocking on your door to take you to prison and you know what they're going to do to you in prison, I get Fear is a pretty natural response. Uh, we, we get that. We understand that. Um, how will I bear up? How long will it last? How bad will it be? Will I ever see my loved ones again in this life? Not a lot of imagination to to uh, um, to think what might happen if that not comes. Peter has life and death situations in view as he should. Um, John the Baptist was beheaded. Jesus was crucified, Stephen was stoned, James was killed with the sword, and now he's seen those things that fell upon leadership in the church start to come to the church as a whole. He knows that they have some reason and some cause to be scared. So fear is easy to understand in the passage. But being troubled, I think, is a little bit different. I think it's more of a, why is this happening? What did I do wrong, God? Where are you, God? Is, is this punishment for little faith or, or for that sin that I did? I think those are the troubled thoughts. Um, Asaph, in Psalm 77, uh, he says, I'm unable to sleep. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. And then he tells us what the source of it is. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? When the heat's turned up on suffering, you'll ask those questions. What did I do wrong? Has God left me? They're the thoughts that trouble the soul. And Peter says, I don't want you to be troubled. They're not true. And that's why he wrote what he did in chapter 4, verse 12. Do not be surprised. It's happening to everyone. Everyone. I I don't want this to sound dismissive or disrespectful in any way, but you're not special. This is what's happening in the church in Peter's day. Don't be surprised. It's not about you. It's about something much, much bigger. Before we move on, one more thing. Do not fear, or have no fear of them, nor be troubled. When you read them in English... I think you're inclined to say, oh, that's a command. Don't fear them. Don't be troubled. They're not commands. Commands show up in the imperative in the Greek, and these are not imperative. So if they're not commands, what are they? I think they're encouragement. I, I think he's saying, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to have your spirit troubled. And yet, Peter knows they will. If he, if he thought that he could just command them, hey, I'm commanding you, don't fear. I'm commanding you, don't be troubled. He would not have wrote what he wrote in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's that's his counsel as, as suffering is coming. Humble yourself. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. You don't have to fear him. You, you don't have to be troubled, but when you do, when you're consumed with anxiety, cast it on God, because He cares for you. It's just a wonderful. Peter's such a good shepherd. I, I want to lead you away from fear. I want to lead you away from that troubled spirit. But you know something? When there's still part of your life, you've got a father. And he says, just cast him on me. You can't carry him. I can But Peter is not content to flip a coin. Maybe they'll have no fear, or maybe they will. Maybe they'll be free from anxiety, or maybe they won't. Who knows? He doesn't leave him to that. He wants him to fight fear. He wants him to fight anxiety. He wants him to fight that troubled spirit and to replace those things with hope, with hope in the midst of persecution. So we'll see this now as we transition from verse 14 to verse 15. Verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet Do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 15, I mentioned that 14 didn't have any imperatives in it. It didn't. Verse 15 does have an imperative, and it's the main point of the passage. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's the command. That's the main point of the entire passage. If It's not all he wants them to do, but it's the foundation for all he wants them to do. You must honor Christ the Lord as holy, or you will be fearful. You will be troubled. You will be anxious. You will not have hope. Get it right, and you can do everything else in the passage. Get it wrong, and you probably can't do any of it. So I guess we need to find out what it means to honor Christ the Lord as holy. The word, the imperative that's that's translated, honor as holy, which is one word in Greek, honor as holy, shows up many other places, but there's one that will be very familiar to you and I think most helpful. If I asked you to all recite the Lord's Prayer right now, you could do it. What are we supposed to do with His name? Hallow it. Same word. Hallowed be thy name. To to hallow, to honor, to treat as holy someone's name is to recognize that that represents who they are. They are a certain kind of person. And so in that prayer, when Jesus says, here's how you ought to pray, um, Our Father is a Father. Hallowed be thy name. Honored and holy be thy name. Why? Because you're in heaven. You have a kingdom. You're, You're sovereign. Your will is done in heaven and one day will be done perfectly on earth. You're the one who gives us our daily bread. You're the one who forgives us our sins. You're the one who's working in us so that we forgive the sins of others. You do not lead us into temptation. You do deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. You want to know why you don't take his name in vain? You don't talk bad or casually about that kind of God. He is amazing. He is unique. That's what's meant by hallow. You honor it. Because he is an amazing, amazing being. There is no other God like him. Honor him, count him as holy, trust him, delight in him. All that he has said is true. This is the one, in fact, that you turn to in prayer. He has all power, all authority. He is amazingly good. He's your father. Honor him. There is none like him. So now let's go back to our text and see if that doesn't help us with what Peter wants us to do we are to treat jesus as holy as utterly unique as king of kings and lord of lords he is the lamb who died to pay the price for our sins he is the lion who rules the nations with a rod of iron he's the one who makes promises that seem too good to be true and if 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 you don't think that you don't think that way how many of them do you struggle to believe he makes amazing promises And he has power to keep them. He purchased those promises with his blood. They're paid for. They're yours. He will keep every one of them because he cannot lie. It would be a great dishonor to just another person if they promised you something and you just said, you know something, I don't think I can trust you to do that. Pretty much the relationship is over at that point, isn't it? Yeah, you said you'd do something, but you're not going to. If it's insulting on a human level, how insulting, how dishonoring is it on a divine level? Jesus, I know what you said. I'm not sure I can trust you. I look at the cross, but I I don't... Is that enough evidence? I don't know. That's dishonoring in the extreme. So I think... In our passage, to treat him as holy, to honor him is to treat him, among other things, as true. He has not lied. He will not lie. He cannot lie. No one's going to snatch you out of his hand. He'll be with you always, to the end of the age. He has all authority, all judgment. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Even the tongue of the person who's making your life miserable right now. So now tell me, again, what are you afraid of? That they'll kill you? Jesus has promised to raise you from the dead and bring you to glory. 20 years ago, uh, yeah, 20, 21, 22 years ago, I had the great privilege of going to a conference where a man named Joseph Son, T S O N, was a speaker. Uh, one of the key—I think he was the keynote speaker. Anyway, um, he's a pastor from Romania, uh, and Romania, of course, after World War II, uh, came under the Soviet Empire influence. Communism was the form of government, and communism is atheistic, and preaching became illegal. Didn't stop Joseph. Kept preaching. Kept preaching. They arrested him time after time. Um, they beat him. They kept him in jail. They threatened his reputation. They did everything possible they could to him. And finally, they brought him in one time and said, look, if you preach again, we're just going to shoot you. He gave an interview to the Baptist press in July of 2004, and here's what he said. When the secret police officer threatened to kill me, to shoot me, I smiled and I said, sir, don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory? You cannot threaten me with glory. Soak in that for a minute. If you believe what Jesus has promised, they might kill you, but not a hair of your head will perish. If you really believe it, you can talk that way. You can't threaten me because I'm just going to go to glory. I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of assurance. I want it for me. I want it for you. I want to honor Christ the Lord as holy, so that when I'm threatened, I don't counter with threats, but with reasons for why their threats are not effective. You can't threaten me with glory. So honor Christ the Lord as holy by so knowing and so believing His promises that that in the midst of persecution. Depression doesn't show up. Anxiety doesn't show up. Fear doesn't show up, or at least not in a controlling way. But rather what shows up is hope. Hope. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, said Job. By the way, they let Joseph go. It's really kind of a a very happy, if you will, ending to the story. They, They didn't believe him, but they said, Oh my gosh, this guy's willing to die for what he believes. Just... Get him out of here. And he preached for a few more years in Romania. They finally exiled him. He came to America, and then he just waited for Romania to open, which it did in, what, 1989 or 90, and he went back and ministered. I believe he's still alive today. He'll be in his 80s, but just, just an incredible man with an incredible testimony. Well, Let's finish out verse 15, and then we'll wrap this up. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And the question I want to ask, why does Peter have to add that last admonition? Do it with gentleness and respect. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is, maybe the main one is, um, your hope is not just meant for you. It's not just something for you to own, and I've got hope. Your hope is something meant to be seen to draw other people into the same relationship that you have with the Lord. The same Lord who gives you hope wants them to have hope. It would be easy, after weeks or months of pain and loss and suffering, to threaten your tormentors. They they would say, hey, hey, well, You need to just break. We're going to keep doing this until you quit. And instead you show hope. And so they say, okay, what's up with the hope? What's up with the stubbornness? What's up with you? If you say, well, I'll be released to glory, and you're going straight to hell. It's not overly winsome. You're not going to come across as one rejoicing in hope. You're going to come across as one bent on revenge. Don't do it. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2:23. Jesus didn't revile. He didn't threaten. He just trusted the Lord. So honor him. Treat him as holy, as one who cannot lie, and who has promised that you are part of a story that gives you a future and a hope. And when you honor him in that way, when you know that you know that nothing's going to separate you from his love, it shows. Suffering is on the horizon. It might be at the door. You might already be in jail or in the hospital. And yet you have hope. And hope is the incontrovertible evidence that you believe him. You believe him. Blessed are you if you suffer for righteousness' sake. And when that kind of hope appears, especially against a backdrop of suffering, people will ask you, tell me about the hope that's in you. If I was going through what you're going through, I would not have hope. I would be angry, resentful, hopeless. I see joy. I see hope. Why? And the doors open. Let me give you a little application as we close. I opened, telling you, and I remind you now, we live in a world that does not have a great deal of hope. E- even when they're doing truly wonderful work and seeing some good results, encouraging results, they get to that place. And it's interesting, because nobody was asking him religious questions, beyond uh, Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, That wasn't what he was there to talk about. But he just realized in that moment of honesty that uh, there's a problem I can't solve. And it's the ultimate problem. Because they don't know God, they have an excuse for grumbling, for despair, for a general lack of hope. We have no excuse. And yet, it's been my observation, and I'll put myself at the head of this list, that Christians can grumble with the best of them. We can make it an art form if we choose to, because we've got some extra ammunition. We know how the world should be, and we know how it is, and man, I got a foundation to grumble. It's not good. You do not honor Christ the Lord as holy when people know us more for our complaining about what is wrong with this world than for our hope that Jesus will one day set it all right. So, as I was preparing this sermon, I wasn't thinking in terms of New Year's resolutions. I make them now and then. You probably do as well. Be careful about the ones that involve diet because you'll you'll break it. Um, But there's a resolution here that I'm going to put before you. What if we make 2022 the year that we resolve not to grumble? Not to grumble about politics. Not to grumble about traffic. Not to grumble. And and on the flip side, there's some good things, really good things that might happen. Let's make sure we don't gloat either because they're both very unattractive. We may well get a decision handed down here before long that either undoes Roe v. Wade or severely limits it, and I'm gonna have to go find a room to just go cry from joy. I never thought that would happen, but it might. If it happens, my rejoicing is gonna be kind of private because I wanna maintain a relationship with people who think that's the worst thing that's happened so I can tell them where my hope really is, because my hope is not in nine people who wear black robes reversing something that never should have happened. My hope is in the Lord, and I want them to see that. In medicine, I see Bob's here. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe one of the first rules is do no harm. In evangelism, let's make it the first rule. Do no harm, and grumbling harms your witness. So let's just resolve not to be that people this year. Second, Peter says, be prepared. Which means then that you shouldn't just have, I think, a general idea that, oh, God is good and I know how the story ends, he wins. You should have promises memorized. You should be able to open your Bible or pull out your phone and, and say, this is why I have hope. Let him read it, let him see it. It's not your personality It's not your inclination, it's your God. Be prepared, because that door will open. Hard times will come to every one of us. And that's your opportunity. So be prepared. I got a call, I don't know, five years ago from a man that I literally had not seen. I think the last time I saw him was 1992, but that was brief. And I think most of the time that I saw him was back in the 80s. So it's been a long time. I've not heard from him, completely lost track of him. We would just bump into each other at events now and then. He called me. I have no idea how he found me. I'm not on social media, but he found me. And he said, uh, or we had a little small talk, and then he said, you know, I always thought you were a fool for being a Christian. Now I'm a Christian, so I guess I'm a fool too. And I look back, and I don't recall any great conversations with my friend, you know, where you go home and you go, man, I think I really, really convinced him of something. I recall being frustrated, a little embarrassed, a lot of self-condemnation because I I was more timid than I should have been. But you know something? I did know what I hoped in. I, I could quote from memory a lot of promises. And so each conversation, when we got into that, there would be something of substance that I would give even if it wasn't all that great I knew what I hoped in I knew what God promised and apparently I said enough true things for him to conclude that I was a fool because that's what will happen if you say a lot of true things he'll say you're a fool and he did and then 20 years later the phone rings and that fool who talked to him in Los Angeles is now living only a few he's up in Vero Beach bearing fruit I have no idea whether any of our conversations played into that, but he thought enough of them to call me and tell me what God had done in his life. I say that just to encourage you. Most of you are going to say, look, yeah, I'll, I'll memorize things. and Okay, I'll stop grumbling, but I'm just not very good at some of this evangelism stuff. Just be faithful. Have those promises out there. Let them see hope in you and God will give you opportunities that, believe it or not, you can bear fruit from. And finally, the last thing I want you to see, Peter sets the bar really high. I hope every one of you has people that say, hey, I know you're a Christian. Uh, or they, they, what church do you go to? Or do you really believe Jesus is the only way? They'll, they'll have some sort of a religious-themed conversation with you because they know you're a believer. That's good, it's good, Don't don't hear me criticize that in any way. But Peter's setting the bar quite a bit higher. When's the last time somebody says, okay, tell me about your hope? Peter's very specific. He doesn't say, let them ask you why you believe in Jesus or why you go to the way or something like that. He said, you know, they should ask you, while they're tormenting you, why you seem so hopeful, so joyful. And so don't settle for what church do you go to? Or do you read the Bible? That's good. Let it happen. Conversations can happen that way that are good. But it's against that dark backdrop of suffering that hope puts before them a question that they have no answer for. They think that suffering and finally death is the unsolvable problem. You don't. Keep the bar high because whether it's criticism or cancer or a bullet, they can't threaten you with glory. Hope. Let's pray. Father, I pray not only that we'll hope, but that we will hope in the right things. Paul wrote that if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, We are of all men most to be pitied. And so let us be clear. Our hope is not in elections, although they're important. Our hope is not in everybody getting released from the hospital and going home healthy, although we pray for that. We love that when that happens. At the end of the day, our hope is this. That no matter what happens, at the end of this, there is a resurrection. There's a resurrection to eternal life. There's a resurrection to a kingdom where righteousness dwells. There's a resurrection to a fellowship with Christ unlike anything we've known. There's a resurrection where every tear is wiped dry and there will be no more. That's our hope. You do many other good things on the way, but at the end of the day, we are not hoping on you in this life only but ultimately and most significantly in the life to come. Hope that be true of every one of us. And Lord, guard, just help us. Help us not undo that hope by grumbling. Let people look, let people see, let people ask, and let this people be prepared. We ask in Jesus' name.